0: There's an ongoing controversy about systemic racism. That's the allegation that racism is embedded in the very fabric of our institutions, whether or not most people adopt conscious racial prejudice. What are we to make of this controversy? Can institutions really reflect underlying ideological premises in the way that it's claimed with racism? A case in point to consider is the utter dominance of altruistic morality in contemporary Western culture, which we could say exhibits system- systemic characteristics. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and director of content at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is a senior fellow, my colleague Ankar Ghatay. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ben. So I wanted to uh, start our conversation today by saying a, just a little bit more about the issue of systemic racism. That's not our main topic today, uh, but it is something that people talk a lot about and debate a lot about today. And we thought it was interesting to use as a tie-in to this even bigger topic that's parallel to it, systemic altruism, which we have a lot to say about. Uh, but just to review the, the controversy about systemic racism to begin with, uh, the on the, the left wing of our political culture, says that systemic racism is, is everywhere. And, and part of what they argue for this is that it's not just the overt beliefs and attitudes, overt old-fashioned racial prejudice, uh, but that it's, it's a product of certain kinds of implicit attitudes that people have. And that uh, because of the overt racism of the past, our, our institutions have simply been set up in such a way Uh, that they consider uh, to have racist outcomes because of differential impacts on members of different races. And the implicit attitudes will uh, perpetuate that and be perpetuated by it. Now, on our political and cultural right, there is, well, they are very critical and dismissive of this idea of systemic racism. They'll acknowledge that there used to be systemic racism, for example, uh, obviously in the Confederacy, the institution of slavery, the Jim Crow South. But they'll also usually emphasize that, especially since the civil rights era in the 1960s, that there's been a, a lot of uh, progress in regards to race relations, racial justice. So they think it just doesn't make so much sense to talk about systemic racism enduring into our time. And they're also, I think, generally skeptical that There is such a thing as racism that's anything other than just overt ideological commitments of the kind that you see, for example, with the Ku Klux Klan. So one question to think about, and it's not going to be our major focus today, but we are going to come back to it at the end and draw some lessons from our major topic for this, is uh, which side, if any, is right in this controversy? Is only one side right about it? Is there a way in which maybe both of them are onto something? Uh, can there be systemic aspects to something like racism even if it's not in the way that the left suggests and I think to answer that question uh, we have to think about the the broader question of well can can ideologies be systemic or systematic without being formally entrenched in people's political institutions overtly expressed in their ideological commitments and Ankar, part of the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I've heard you make the point in the past uh, that, well, there's a way in which Ayn Rand thinks that altruism is systemic. And that's a big part of her critique of it. And so it's a, it's a there's a, this is, we're, the tie-in that we're getting to is to her, her view about altruism. But there is this interesting parallel.
1: Yes. And it's a big part of her, I think, just analysis of Western culture and but particularly of American culture, American life from the when she starts really turning to her nonfiction writing in the 60s till her death in the 80s, she has a lot of cultural commentary. And part of that commentary is about the nature of altruism in the sense, I think, once she writes at the shrug, she thinks she's established proven that altruism is evil and enormously destructive. And we can talk a little bit about the way that she thinks about altruism, why she thinks that. What she's doing in her nonfiction writing is exposing how impactful altruism is and that this view of morality is, how impactful in in a detrimental, negative, destructive sense so when I first heard the, the charges about systemic racism and that the U.S. Uh, remains a systemically racist place, that you have to think of its, its social and political institutions and organization as still pervaded by racism, the, to evaluate that claim, part of the way I think about it is, like, what kind of claim is being made and so it's it's about the impact of certain ideas and an ideological viewpoint that the impact can remain even if when if you ask individual people and say, well, are you a racist? Do you, do you think blacks and whites should be separate? Should there be a colored only sign? So, of what you saw in the Jim Crow South, most people would say, no, they'll say, no, I repudiate that. So, and yet, um, what, so the claim is, yeah, but that's not the whole story. And I think there's a way in which you can think of Ayn Rand's analysis of altruism is that it's systemic in Western culture. And as I said, particularly her focus of her cultural commentary is in the institutions and organizations of the contemporary American world, of the way politics is working and more broadly, the, the way the culture is moving you have to see it, that it's moving in the way that it's saturated by altruism, even if you asked a person and said, "Like, what are your moral view? And do you think that um, everybody should engage in self-sacrifice, that you don't count at all, you should live for other people? That's the whole justification of your existence. There's a way in which I think if you asked a decent American that, explicitly and that starkly many would recoil and like no that's not exactly what i think and yet there is a way that deeper down that's what everybody thinks or almost everybody thinks they've been infected by this view um and it's shaping the way that they think the way that they evaluate and therefore what they think are proper and improper policies, and we could talk about some of that. But I, so part of what she's doing in her analysis is really showing, um, it's may not be obvious to you the way that altruism is, has infected all cultural issues, but it really has. And what I'm doing in part of my analysis, what she's doing is showcasing the way that it's in play and driving things, such as for instance the Vietnam War, that nobody would understand that it's. And her view is you can't understand our whole foreign policy, and I agree with this completely, unless you understand that it's driven by altruism, and it's driven by altruism even if the top generals say no, we're fighting for America and for America's interests. That's not actually what's happening, and so it, that's the, the. It's sort of a altruism is sort of a combination of, there's certainly an an explicit element to it, but there's an implicit element to it. And you have to see both, I think is part of what she's arguing to understand its influence and impact in the world. Um, And then she, I mean, she gives a lot of evidence and arguments for it is all over the place, even if you don't recognize that it is.
0: Yeah, and I think once we develop the case for that view, which is important in its own right, uh, it's gonna have some, some at least incidental uh, lessons we can draw for that systemic racism controversy, which we'll come back to at the end of the episode. But to, to really dig into the, the issue of the way in which altruism is systemic. Uh, first, we should just maybe do a brief recap of well, what are we talking about when we talk about altruism? So uh, this is obviously a, a moral philosophy, a code of morality. Um, it's the idea that the good consists in serving the interests of others, not uh, in, in serving your own interests. This is a—so uh, you mentioned, Ankar, that Ayn Rand spent a lot of time explaining how this uh, moral idea is at work in so much of the world. And, of course, part of the reason why she did this is because she thinks that it's, that it's false, that it's immoral, actually, that it's an evil ideology that's behind many of the other things that people acknowledge to be evils in the world. And part of the reason why she thinks that it's evil is because she thinks that deep down, it's not really about uh, love for other people, uh, uh, respect for other people, that it's rather a kind of hatred for achievement, a kind of hatred for ability, that it's a, at various points she called it a morality of death, because what it says, in effect, is if if you have uh, not created anything, if you have no ability, then the people who do have ability and who have created owe something to you, uh, simply by virtue of the fact that you you lack that value, that you haven't created that value. She sometimes calls it worship of the zero. And uh, you know, one perhaps symbolic expression of that idea is what you see in Karl Marx: uh, "From each according to his ability, to each according to his need," which. Is uh, satirized or lampooned or uh, I mean otherwise dramatized in uh, important parts of *Out in the Shrugged, especially the story of the twentieth century motor company.
1: And so, yeah, I was just going to say I think it's important. Well, it's you gave three satirized um, another and then dramatized. I think it's dramatized that that it's important that that's what she's doing in the sense. That she's taking it literally. This is what literally, this is what it means. What you get in Atlas Shrugged in the 20th Century Motor Company is they're putting this principle into practice or trying to put it into practice. This is the all that it could mean, all that it does mean, and in the end, it's the reason it's being implemented, and then Atlas Shrugged more broadly, is that viewpoint being implemented at a society-wide level and another way of putting the that slogan from I think Ayn Rand's perspective it's from each according to what he's produced to each according to what he hasn't produced and so it's a war with the producer that the fact that you've produced something disqualifies you from that value and the fact that you haven't produced it is what qualifies you for it and that it's such a hatred of ability intelligence but of creation and productivity and if the essence of human life is to produce the values we need to go to war with that fact is to go to war with human life which is why in in at the you get that it's it's term a morality of death and she doesn't she means that literally it's a morality that is dedicated to the destruction of human life
0: So you had said earlier that part of her analysis involved showing her audience where altruism was involved, where they might not have suspected it. Uh, Now, I, I suspect that many people who are watching us today are already familiar with Ayn Rand. And so because they're because they've read so much of what she's written on this subject, they like us and like like she did, they see we see altruism everywhere and indeed it is everywhere to be seen if you're if you're on the lookout for it now we'll we'll have to talk later about why not everybody does see it but uh if you look in our political culture on the the cultural political left environmentalism is asking us to sacrifice our our standard of living our technology uh for the sake of pristine nature and so you have uh, movements like extinction rebellion uh, we have egalitarianism also on the political left where people of ability and achievement are uh, sacrificed to those without it in the name of equality. Nowadays you even have this movement that calls itself effective altruism and so it's it's like wearing it on its sleeve, uh, asking people to earn as much money as they can just so they can give it away and we've we've commented on this uh, movement recently and uh, uh, how it's uh, suddenly come into the, the political scene. Of course, it's not just the left. On the cultural right, uh, increasingly, uh, various uh, conservative politicians are are asking us to sacrifice various individual freedoms and our happiness, all for the sake of uh, the family uh, or for the nation or for God. Uh, there are, I think, many examples to talk about, which we've detailed in previous podcasts. Probably the most obvious one that comes to the top of my mind is the anti-abortion movement, which is a prominent, increasingly prominent part uh, of the political uh, right. And that's just in, in politics. Um, you know, when you look to the broader culture, I mean, people equate altruism with, with morality as such. When you bring up the topic of uh, uh, self-interest or the pursuit of happiness, at, at most it's an amoral consideration. This is part of the reason why uh, people see the moral is one category and the practical as another, and they think that they're usually in opposition with each other, that uh, that is part of the reason why they think moral perfection is impossible, because you've got to live, don't you? You can't be a selfless saint all the time, and so you've got to compromise your morality, and therefore you can never be uh, morally perfect. Um, and
1: th-
0: you see this in the politics most obviously and the way in which i think if you if you most people who are familiar with the objectivist position on this question would acknowledge that there is a systemic aspect to altruism is insofar as it shows up in overt political systems and, uh, the both the political left and the political right when they get into power uh, will will implement it in one form or another and then propagandize for it. So socialism and the welfare state are both the, uh, the leftist versions of altruism in action, in politics, and uh, fascism and nationalism are the, the right-wing version of altruism in action, in politics. And uh, these are political systems which uh, have systematic effects on people not only because when they're in power, they're able to propagandize on behalf of their ideology and therefore influence people to adopt it and continue to spread it, but they they actually implement this ideology by force. And that's of course, one of the ways in which it's so destructive. And so you can understand in part why when people think about uh, systems that they, the first thing that comes to mind is a political system because in, in part that's where uh, an ideology can have so much impact especially for the for the worse if it comes in the form of force Um, and so that's where it's obvious to so many of us that altruism is is at work in a systematic way in our culture but Ankar you'd said before that it's not obvious to everybody and that's a big part of why Ayn Rand was arguing in the way that she did can you expand on that a little bit more
1: well take the examples that you just brought up so she thinks of communism and fascism as going together as superficial variations on the same fundamental theme that is not how they were thought about at the time of their rise it's not how they were thought about in world war ii They were thought of as two systems in competition with each other and nazism even though it's national socialism i mean that's what it means is viewed as Oh no! This is an expression of of being selfish, egoistic. It's they want to advance the German race. They're they're trying to advance their national interest. That's the problem with it. It's too selfish. It's too self interested. And even some some um, people like Hannah Arendt who have a in many ways, a perceptive analysis of fascism. So think of it, it's too logical, too rational, too dedicated to the self. And that communism, and and if you think of what happened in World War II, would we'll fight the Nazis and, and ally with the communists uh, and and Stalin, who's also a mass murderer in, in World War II, it's because while well, communism is about the um, the, common good it's it's implementing this view that you you shouldn't live for self you should live for others so and that well we know that's good and that's noble and her view of an analysis of this but it came as news to basically everybody at the time and it's still if you if you read about the discussions and analysis now about communism and and fascism and so on people don't think of them as just superficial variations on the same theme. But her view is that both statism, they were both calls for sacrifice and that you have to understand it like that. And it was sacrifice for the sake of the nation and the German race and subordinate yourself to that. The Germany is all, the motherland is all. And communism was, we're going to sacrifice everybody and particularly the men of ability, the producers, the property owners, we're going to sacrifice them. For the supposed sake of the proletariat, and, so and even though the, there's they're never rising. All that happens when you destroy people of ability and production is that you collapse more and more economically and socially. So it's yet oh, but th- there's got to be something noble about this, and and part of it is that you can't. Her viewers you can't understand that you got this mass movement that had what's global towards communism and fa- and fascism that have seen it well it's the morality that's in common between these two that's driving people into the hands of either the fascists or the communist that they're both calling for sacrifice so her view was it's statism putting power into the hands of the government rather than the individual that's made possible if the individual is an object of sacrifice and the state there is to be the one um who's administering the sacrifices and it's a detail whether you're the individual sacrificed for the motherland or he sacrificed for the proletariat but the whole thing is it's what's good is to sacrifice him and he should view it like that's what i'm here for to sacrifice my life my values my time my property and it's it's and just that that's still not understood today and she's arguing that at least starting in the thirty, with at least with we the living. I think uh, it,
0: when we were talking about this before the broadcast started, you you also gave what I thought was a uh, a really good example of the way even in uh, contemporary politics uh, you see. People's inability to see the altruism at work, and you gave the example of the the social security system. You should unpack that a bit. I think was really good example.
1: Yeah, social security and Medicare, Medicaid are like this too. That it, th- this is part of it. That it's it's sort of simultaneously out in the open and disguised, and that's the part of the peculiarity of altruism, and the way it exists in America. So. Social security, and and I think it's more obvious than Medicare, but it applies to both of these. It's, look, this is not a handout. This is not welfare. You pay into the system, and then at the end, when you retire, you get back what you paid. That's part of how it was presented, how it was sold. It wasn't sold nakedly as, okay, this is a system in which the productive pay into it, and the people who haven't produced, will take out of it and hopefully 30 years down the road, we'll find other new productive people to um, take their money from them and give them to the people now retiring. That's what the scheme actually is. There is no saving, it's not your own money. You could, if it were, you could just keep your money and invest it. And so the whole thing is the whole program, and it's designed like this, is to take from the productive and give to the people who haven't produced. And it was, people, like they know that, but don't want to fully acknowledge that that's what social security is because there does seem, and particularly from the American individualist, self-reliant perspective, like, isn't there something wrong with that, that I'm just mooching off other people and then hoping, um, that, uh, for the people who I've taken from, when they retire, they'll have people they can mooch off of. Like, isn't there something really wrong with this? So you have to disguise it as, oh no, no, this is an investment scheme and you're just getting back what you paid into the system. And that kind of duality is for a lot of, uh, I think, of these programs and these government programs. But the essence of the program is to take from the productive and to give to the unproductive. And when Now, I mean, Social Security and Medicare both are in crisis. It's what do we do about this? One of the major proposals and particularly this is viewed, this would be the moral solution. It's we're going to means test it. And so the people who because they also have saved a lot or they earned a lot, so they won't be able to collect Social Security, even they paid into the system. Shouldn't they just be collecting their own money? Oh, no, we'll use we'll take that money and give it to the people who um, now don't have savings. And so, on. and so, I mean, that tells you the whole purpose of it is to take from the productive and give to the people who haven't produced. And that, so part of her analysis is to bring out fully into the open. And so to fully face, like this really is what social security is about. This is what the scheme is. And this is what the ultimate justification is and the reason people accept it, even in America, is they more and more accept the idea that if you're going to be truly moral, you have to accept the idea that what morality is about is taking from the productive and giving to the non productive. What disqualifies you from a value is that you produced it. And what qualifies somebody else is the very fact that he didn't produce it. And that, it's, it's, so it's operative but people don't want to fully face it and so there's all kinds of disguises in regard to these things and part of what she's doing is uh is is tearing down the mask you could say similar things in regard to foreign policy there's the presentation of american foreign policy as it's about achieving america's interest and then it will be painted as like we're too belligerent, um, if you take the metaphors of the hawks and the doves, the hawks are after America's self-interest. They want us to go to war to advance our interests. And when you look at actual foreign policy from Vietnam onwards, it's we're never advancing our interests. You can't even explain like, why are we in um, uh, Vietnam? Or if you fast forward to 9-11, I mean, we're attacked on our own soil. And it will start off as, oh, we have to extract justice here. We have to retaliate in in the name of our interest. The war will be, it's the pursuit of infinite justice. Oh, no, you can't call it that. And you can't say we're trying to protect our interest in oil or energy. And it morphs into, it's a war to bring freedom to the Iraqi people. Um, and that it, it, and it like, okay, everybody can, okay. That can be a justification and that's an altruistic justification. Like we're not gaining anything, but look, we're helping other people. So isn't what we're doing good. And so, and the, the, I mean, nobody could tell you what we're doing or trying to achieve in Afghanistan, how this will advance our interests, but there's some sense that, well, they attacked us. So isn't like, it shouldn't we be doing something and so, and it's complete chaos, but the the fundamental driver is we dare not really assert our self-interest it has to be self-sacrificial in some way so it's okay we're bringing schools and education into afghanistan so and the the collapse of that whole thing with biden retreating it i mean it's tragic but it's el- it's an eloquent symbol of you really think American foreign policy is driven by trying to achieve our self-interest? We have no idea what we're doing. We have no idea how to withdraw. R- r- and it's a travesty for us and a travesty actually for the Afghani people, for anyone who actually desired freedom. So, but it's again, it's 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 this kind of... Um, it, it, it's a massive pretense that they, you don't want to openly say, down with america's interest all we counts is everybody else and so on and yet you dare not assert your interest and so you're in this no man's land i mean for vietnam it was a no win war what is that um and that's part of what altruism does and that she's writing about these kinds of issues she's exposing the way in which altruism is so corrosive
0: Uh, So a few minutes ago, one of the examples that you were giving of a case where people don't see the role of altruism at work was the difference between, uh, they see this massive difference between communism and fascism, and and she helped demonstrate how really they were united by a common moral idea. And you mentioned why you, you really have to bring in the role of moral ideas in explaining the course of history why is it that so much of the world in this period is turning toward totalitarianism there why is it that so much uh, sacrifice both both voluntary and involuntary is being done well it's this it's the role of this unified moral idea and I think what that speaks to is a, is an even broader issue of the systematicity of this of this idea that yes the Perhaps the most obvious way in which there's a system of altruism is is in the form of a political system, but there's more to it than that. There's a social-cultural system that's at work behind the overt, ex- explicit, formal political system. And you can think that even if, uh, even if the political system were to be destroyed, that the social-cultural system would still be there. And you, to see this, you just have to look at the various... Uh, social and cultural institutions that are at work, uh, preaching and spreading, and and otherwise giving the means to transmit altruism. Um, the most obvious two examples, and there's more than this, are the the churches and the universities. I mean, churches explicitly preach this kind of morality. I would argue, and have have written, and am writing about how it is in fact the originator of of altruism today, including the secular varieties, that it's ultimately rooted in the Judeo-Christian moral tradition of of loving thy neighbor and being uh, your brother's keeper. So uh, churches preach altruism every day uh, and they are a social system uh, of their own right. Uh, if, If you wonder why is it that people just equate morality with altruism today, it's because we, the West at least, has been under the dominion of the influence of uh, Christianity for the better part of 2,000 years. And even when you look at most of the dominant secular ethical theories uh, from philosophers like Rawls and Kant and Sidgwick, you scratch them just a little bit, you you see the religion underneath. All of them had uh, substantial uh, uh, religious influences working on them, and it. Amounts to a kind of systematic influence on the culture, whether it's coming from a political institution or not. I mean, uh, if you think just about the church, for instance, it it, it was a, a a social system, cultural system that preceded uh, political dominance. There were there were like thirty seven popes uh, before uh, Christianity became a state religion, and you know that's a whole hierarchical system. And it exerts an enormous influence on the culture and and then uh, and of course that's part of the motivation for adopting the political system, but even when the political system ends and, you know, as it has with the theocracy in the West, there's no longer much political control by religion, but that that set of ideas that it's preached for 2000 years is not without its impact on the way people, whether philosophers or other thinkers still think about morality. And of course, it's not just uh, universities today, but the, the media and activist groups and charities, all the way down to businesses. Uh, and that's actually an interesting example because you don't usually think about businesses uh, being altruistic. You think of them, they're concerned with making profits. But at the same time, we have uh, so much uh, rhetoric of how businesses need to give back to their community. And I mean, that's an interesting example of the same kind of thing I think you were talking about with regard to social security, that uh, if you put it in terms of giving back, it makes it sound like it's an act of justice because there's something we've taken from you and so we're paying it back. And so that's the policy of a trader. But uh, in fact, that's not actually an issue of justice because businesses made their money by by producing a value that people purchase voluntarily. And so anything over and above that is either charity which can sometimes have a self-interested basis but very often more often than not when people talk about it as giving back it's it's altruistic and you see this in the form of so many different you know uh, campaigns that businesses engage in to sell green products or uh, uh, be nature friendly or what have you and this is what Rand was talking about uh, when she talked about transmission belts uh, between the philosophers uh, including here, I think the universities and the churches and the the rest of the wider culture, and it's if you think about transmission belt, that's like a metaphor to a, a trans a transmission belt in a motor, and a motor is so it's part of a wider system. There's this wider social system, uh, of which uh, the political system is one important uh, mechanism and expression, but it's certainly not the only one. I don't know if you had anything and to add I, to that.
1: Yeah, it's something on this uh, the media and a uh, transmission belt. It's of thinking of how altruism is systemic. And that part of what that means is it's not always overt and explicit. And the people operating in the system don't even always know that, yeah, what I'm doing here makes sense only because of altruism. And if you had a different view in morality, it wouldn't make sense. There's a way in which they just think, well, I'm just doing my job. I'm just reporting the news. And so on. to give a, a example in the headlines right now, the student loan forgiveness issue that Biden is pushing and it's before the Supreme Court. I was watching this week. Uh, I normally uh, watch, I, mean, I regularly watch or listen to NPR news. And partly just to get, to have a, uh, to get a pulse, of how things are being thought about, what is being reported and what's not. And I think the reporting, would have they would have thought just look, we're reporting the story. It, we're not slanting it in a certain way, but the slanting is, it certainly was slanted and it's slanted by altruism. And the whole story about the student loan forgiveness was to go around um, interviewing students who said they really, really need their loans to be forgiven and what would happen like if you've got 60,000 in loans or 130,000 in loans what would happen to you if this doesn't go through or the supreme court decides that this is unconstitutional what the way biden's trying to do it and strikes it down so, there was no focus like none on well who's paying for this where did like, it's a loan what happens to the person who gave a loan and now is not being paid back And in this context, the people loaning are the taxpayers. But what that really means, it's people who've produced things. They're the ones whose money has been taken by the government and doled out in loans to people. And now the government's going to say, oh, you don't have to pay these back. So who foots the bill for all of this? It's the productive people. And they don't have, there's no consideration or concern about in in terms of just reporting, like what you're reporting what's gonna to happen to the students if they can their, their loans aren't forgiven. There's no reporting on well, what happens to the people from whom this money has come. What does it do to their lives? So, and that is, they wouldn't think of there's a need to report that because we're report we're holding, we're looking at this sort of through a moral lens. And if you look at it through a moral lens, all that counts is the people in need and the people who haven't produced anything, they're the ones entitled to it. And really, and it's presented sort of as this conservative Supreme Court might say that this is unconstitutional and prevent the government from doing something that's good. That the whole, and it's not, the the whole framing is implicit, but it's certainly there if you know how to look at what is happening. And that's part of what it means to say altruism is systemic. It's, they wouldn't really understand that the, what they're doing only makes sense because they've bought into altruism. And so there's a way in which they're then helping to perpetuate it. Because the whole story is the, the what it upholds is these uh, supposed victims who might, whose loans might not be forgiven. And that's what we should be care about. And that's what we should be concerned with. And the people watching it will be, oh yeah, I guess that's what we should care about. And have, we should have some more concern about that. So, and that's part, that's part of what it means. It's a transmission belt. And it's not just a transmission belt is that they're, explicitly advocating altruism. It's just the whole presentation is colored and, indeed, framed by altruism.
0: I should mention someone in the chat uh, gave the example of ESG, and, I mean, that's another good example of a way in which, uh, for those who don't know, this is environmental, social governance. It's a, it's a philosophy of investment that a lot of Uh, investment firms have started adopting and it's a condition that they have for for giving out capital and there are like I've talked with people in the energy industry who who can't get money from some of the kinds of banks they used to get money from because if you work in the energy industry especially fossil fuels it's it's regarded as bad for the environment and you're not sacrificing enough if you're if you're uh, if you're getting profits from that kind of that kind of uh, value production. so, And that's something that would exist in a culture even if uh, all kinds of these government programs were were abandoned. That you'd, If people still shared that philosophy, they'd still be running, uh, some of them at least would be running uh, investment firms along those lines. I don't know how long, because I don't know how long you can stay profitable that way, but at least for a while. Um, so another subject that I wanna discuss in connection with the way in which Altruism is systematic is to say a little bit about the forces that 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 drive it forward in a culture through whether political or non-political institutions. And here it's interesting to think again about the the topic of systemic racism because one of the ways in which advocates of that idea claim uh, that racism manifests systemically is through uh, in effect human psychology. They they talk a lot about the role of implicit bias and implicit racism. And, you know, we could have a whole separate conversation about to what extent that's a valid uh, uh, concern. But if you turn to the question of the psychological mechanisms by which altruism spreads and sustains itself in our culture, uh, there there are quite a lot of them. And it's not always obvious to everyone that they're involved. And this is part of what makes it uh, a system that needs uncovering. But if, if you look at the, the psychology of how altruism operates, it's it's pretty clear. Um, think just about the motivation, for example, of the people who propose the altruistic policies, especially the political policies. There are clear ways in which power lust uh, is at is involved, because you're asking other people to sacrifice to some goal or other, uh, even if it's not one that you're going to, well, especially if it's not one you're going to benefit from, from but, but you're saying other people will. You're, in effect, using the, the, the victims there. You're using the ones who are allegedly in, uh, in need to justify this policy of controlling uh, people of ability and the producers. Uh, let's put on the screen a, a quote that I wanted to share from Ayn Rand that speaks to this. Uh, and this is from her essay, Philosophical Detection uh where a lot of what she talks about are the various ways in which formal explicit overt philosophic ideas serve to rationalize base psychological motives and so she says altruism is the single richest source of rationalizations a morality that cannot be practiced is an, is an unlimited cover for any practice altruism is the rationalization for the mass slaughter in soviet Russia for the legalized looting in the welfare state, for the powerless of politicians seeking to serve the common good, for the concept of a common good, for envy, hatred, malice, brutality, for the arson, robbery, hijacking, kidnapping, murder perpetrated by the selfless advocates of sundry collectivist causes, for sacrifice and more sacrifice and an infinity of sacrificial victims. When a theory achieves nothing but the opposite of its alleged goals, yet its advocates remain undeterred, you may be certain that it is not a conviction or an ideal, but a rationalization she goes on to say a little bit later in the essay, if in the course of philosophical detection, you find yourself at times stopped by the, indign- the indignantly bewildered question, how could anyone arrive at such nonsense? You'll begin to understand it when you discover that evil philosophies are systems of rationalization. So if, if, uh, if you think that there's implicit bias involved in racism, just imagine how much implicit and sometimes explicit envy and desire for power is it work psychologically in the various proposals that people uh, seek to implement, not just politically, but but in the broader social cultural scene? I mean, if you look, for example, at the uh, uh, the, the the way universities are governed today, and uh, the the involvement of uh, so-called woke ideology, there, there are ways in which that's an exercise of political power, but there's also ways in which it's just uh, one professor getting to make sure another professor doesn't get a job. And uh, there's a kind of power that's being exercised even there. Uh, and certainly envy is something that that's, uh, can be expressed in any kind of setting, whether political uh, or otherwise. Um, more to say about that. But Angra, did you want to say anything on the role of uh, ration, the way in which altruism rationalizes all of these different factors?
1: Just this, in terms of Ayn Rand's analysis, that part of the evidence that this is how it's functioning and this is what it's doing, that it is a source of rationalization and valued because it's a source of rational, rationalization, that is valued by evil people because it allows them to continue their evil. It's to go back to part of what we were talking about in terms of the the culture and historic wide impact of altruism that she views it and viewed it and argued that it's at root of communism and fascism it was at root of the growing collectivism and statism in the 20th century that swept in europe and that was seeking certainly seeking power in the united states and achieved it in much more diluted form through the welfare state and through Roosevelt and and onwards to, to Kennedy and Johnson and the creation of the welfare state and some of like Social Security and Medicare that we were talking about. These programs have proven disastrous. They're going bankrupt and so on. And more widely, socialism, communism, fascism destroyed basically every country in which they were tried and implemented. And rather than questioning well maybe there's something wrong with our moral perspective our moral ideal maybe there's something wrong with the calls for sacrifice and the sacrifice the and particularly the sacrifice the producers the creators the people of ability that's not what happened there wasn't widespread questioning of this perspective what happened was if anything just d- a doubling down on it and becoming more explicit. And this was her analysis of the rise of egalitarianism was that it's the sort of the fig leafs that this is gonna raise everybody up. This is the realm of prosperity. Communism is gonna outstrip capitalism. So all that's gone. And what you get with Rawls and all his disciples is, no, we need a system that's geared to the least well off. Like you find the lowest people in society, the whole system has to be geared to them and you will allow differences, this is part of his difference principle, you'll allow people to deviate from, that is to have more money or more um, job opportunities, or I mean, you can go on and on in terms of values, to have more values than the lowest off, only if it helps raise the lowest off a little bit and it was it so it really was much more nakedly it what the target is is to penalize intelligence ability that you don't count at all the whole system is geared to the lowest off it's you don't have some vision of grand prosperity and a great future and 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 this kind of system will outstrip capitalism no that's not important anymore It's that it's the geared to the people who lack value for whatever reason they lack value. The whole system is geared to that and that that it tells you that what's driving it is it's not really an ideal. It's doing something else and it's functioning in some other way and indeed it's functioning as a rationalization for envy. It allows people to maintain that envy and that hatred of producers of men of intelligence ability while dressing it up. No, don't say that I'm doing something evil. This is what the good is about. This is what morality is about.
0: So, so far we've talked a bit about the uh, psychology that's at work in the the people who spread altruism for the sake of this kind of power loss. But it's worth mentioning, part of the reason I wanted to talk about psychology under the heading of uh, systematicity is that there's another side of that equation there are the people who are then practicing what's been spread and there are systemic psychological factors that continue to motivate their acceptance uh, and Ayn Rand specifically writes about this in uh, an essay of hers called altruism as appeasement and there she talks about the the phenomenon of uh, uh, intellectuals who especially when they're young are made to feel ashamed for being different because of their minds and because they want to use their intellect. And so they feel like if they're to make some uh, uh, room in their life for using their intellect, they have to justify it to the people who've belittled them and say, well, I'm doing this really for your sake. And she thinks this explains why at least many people who are intellectually minded when they're young end up leaning in the direction of of, uh, uh, left-wing politics, which is one overt expression of, of altruism. Uh, and that's a case where there's a, a kind of insecurity that a person has, a certain kind of lack of self-esteem. They're not they're they're afraid to stand up for themselves in the face of criticism and disagreement. And altruism then gives them a justification for the the way in which they're being different. Well, I'm just using my mind to serve you. I'm just using my mind to serve the greater good. And uh, that makes them feel good about the, the, what they're doing is is actually a, a moral and admirable thing, even if, in fact, it's a kind of manifestation of cowardice. And I think there's many smaller scale versions of this she's talking about, where where we see it among uh, highly functional intellectual types. But I've been reading this book recently called um, Pathological Altruism. And uh, it's got all kinds of examples of uh, where where you see the same kind of dynamic, uh, people who are codependents, who are Uh, enabling addictive uh, uh, members of their family, Um, kind of battered spouse syndrome where someone can't get out of a relationship, they feel guilty about leaving, Um, even down to like uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, people are uh, afraid of getting other people sick, Um, the kind of survivor guilt that sometimes goes with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. These are all cases where uh, some kind of insecurity and and in in some cases it's not a person's fault, but... uh, for whatever reason, they lack self-esteem, and and altruism encourages them to be self-effacing, encourages them to con- double down on 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 being a victim, and they're able to justify it to themselves because they think, well, I can't be selfish and assert my own interests here. And uh, I mean, a lot of psychologists see that this is uh, a, a really—I mean, they call it pathological altruism. So there's even on a psychological level, they see there's something wrong with it. But interestingly, in this book, they never they never go to the uh, to the extent of saying, "Well, maybe there's something wrong with altruism that gives people a reason to act in these pathological ways." Um, another way in which there's a system here: it's not just there's psychology on one end and psychology on the other. There's psychology. There's a psychological relationship, that that uh, by which altruism is spread. And I I think this is more or less. Uh, what ayn rand herself was writing about when she talks about the the sanction of the victim that in effect that's a kind of positive feedback mechanism in the system where the better people because they don't fully understand the nature of the the role of altruism uh, especially because it's it's not always overt in the way that um that uh uh that people think it might be still end up practicing certain elements of it or accepting certain premises of it and thereby. Emboldening uh, the, their victimizers, thereby emboldening the, the people who are going for power, making them think that this kind of power lust is actually efficacious, helping them to evade whatever insecurities they have that are making them engage in this kind of exploitation. And you certainly see uh, this kind of thing happening in, in various places in, in Ayn Rand's fiction. Like think about these, the relationship between um, Cheryl and James Taggart, where, where Cheryl is is internalizing a lot of the altruistic messages that James is preaching her. And he's using that to control her. And it helps him think that he's better than he actually is, that he's able to put one over on her. And she's further victimized because of it. Uh, and I mean, the lesson, of course, of, of Atlas Shrugged more generally is that it's because evil works only through the sanction of the victim, it, the, the victims need to stand up for themselves and stop sanctioning the evil. And the primary way, of course, in which she thinks that needs to happen is by rejecting this this moral idea that's made them victims, often without their even realizing it, um, and that's cases where people are victimized by an uh, an internalization of altruism, when they don't necessarily know that it's altruism doing it, but they don't deny that it's doing it but i mean i think it's an important phenomenon to talk about is that like if you live and you grow up in a a culture that's saturated by altruism in the way that it is like even when you're a fan of ayn rand and even if you're an objectivist uh it's not like you read a few books and decide this is that you you were wrong about altruism before that that's just going to immediately instantaneously overnight purge it from your system i mean I don't know about you, Ankar, but uh, I, I was raised uh, religious and was certainly uh, explicitly altruistic in my thinking um, you know, for a good number of years. And when I discovered objectivism, it was a big, it, it took a long time to really purge some of those altruistic premises. And some people would say, I haven't done it completely. And I just, one anecdote that comes to mind, you should tell me if you have any like this. Um, I'm, in, when I'm in grad school and uh by this time i've been studying objectivism for a few years i think of myself as an objectivist i'm studying to be a philosopher and yet i moved to a city for graduate school where i had never seen uh panhandlers before uh, or i had never seen panhandlers where i grew up and now i'm seeing them in the city for the first time and for a few a few occasions like i felt guilty walking by them and gave them money you know for only for the reason that they were asking for it and it even after Uh, a few weeks, I thought about like, wait, why I shouldn't be doing that, that I shouldn't feel guilty walking past these people. especially when I found out that they weren't really trapped without a car, like they said they were. But that was, um, that's just one, I think, of many examples of people. And I know I've met other people who are objectivists and who think of themselves as egoists and who still, you know, feel the pull of the guilt uh, that they internalized from a, from a young age. I don't know if you have anything to, to add to that.
1: I wasn't raised religious, thank God, um, but <laughs> but yeah, it, it it is it is impossible to not have absorbed some altruistic perspectives if you're growing up in contemporary culture. And basically, and I mean, grew up in Canada, but it doesn't it doesn't matter if you grew up in Canada, US, the UK, Germany, France. I mean, basically any Western country, and you'll absorb an altruistic perspective. So one that I got, and it took some time. It wasn't that hard to eradicate, but it was hard to identify. Once identified, it was easier to eradicate, but it was the, I had basically always sympathy for the underdog. And there is a sometimes a legitimacy to that, but what altruism, inculcates is yeah it's always the person who in contemporary terminology is marginalized that's the person who counts precisely because they don't have values and you're not supposed to ask the question like why are they marginalized why don't they have values one of the things altruism packages together is a victim in and that means a victim of injustice and a so-called victim that just means they don't have values because they couldn't be bothered to to pursue values and to produce them and to create them. And you're not supposed to make that kind of distinction. So in older America, there was a distinction between um, the deserving poor and, by implication, the undeserving poor. It's the poor who, it's through no fault of their own, they were trying and they are hit by... Tragedy, the a spouse dies, a, a fire destroys your home, and so on. And you help them out, but you're helping them out in the name of values and that they're interested and in trying to produce values. And the des- undeserving poor was the people who just turned to drink and it's they're wasting their life away and now making claims like, can you give me money and so on. And no, you're not deserving of help. There was that kind of distinction that the progressives... Um, adamantly and consciously warred against. You're not allowed to to make that distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor. The fact that they're poor is what entitles them to value, and that's altruism. And so here, the separating out is there are underdogs who are the marginalized who are victims of injustice, and you should be on their side, and you should have sympathy to them. And there are underdogs to to, to put that who are, it is through fault of their own and you should not have sympathy for them or at least the the major lesson that they need to get is you're suffering through fault of your own. You have to correct your ways, not get help for other people. What you need and the kindest thing I can do to you is to point out that you're suffering through fault of your own and you need to self-correct. And altruism blurs that. And when I understood that like that's part of what's going on and so there's something legitimate about sometimes caring about underdogs and sometimes not, it's, okay, you've got to break that package deal up, but it's a package deal I absorbed because it's pushed in the culture. So
0: I think we've uh, uh, we've uh, said most of what we want to say about systemic altruism, but I, I promise that we would at least bring this back uh, for a little bit to the topic of the tie-in, the systemic racism. Now we're not going to we're not going to settle this question today. Uh, but I, I think we should at least leave people with a few uh, uh, bits of food for thought uh, on how to maybe resolve uh, their thinking on this topic in light of what we've just established, that, that uh, there are uh, a systematic uh, social political forces that are not always overtly expressed in people's ideology or in political systems. And so when you look at the debate about systemic racism, I mean, I think it's fair to say that that what the left says about systemic racism uh, is in in many ways uh, wildly exaggerated, if not just outright arbitrary. Not every uh, differential outcome between groups indicates an origin in some kind of prejudice or, or racism. And they, I think will often, uh, conservatives are, are often right to point to the real social uh, progress that's been made with regard to uh, race race relations i mean the death of various racist legal political institutions is is a big deal um and so that i think we can say that's not the right way to think about systemic racism and we could we could probably do a whole separate show just on that subject but at the same time uh even if we think of the conservative critique of systemic racism as 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 hitting many correct points, because the, the way the left is 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 being arbitrary about it. there There's still when I see various and you should tell me what you think, uh, when I see various conservative critiques of systemic racism, it's it's sometimes put just in terms of, well, these we don't have Jim Crow anymore. We don't have slavery. Uh, Nobody uh, talks like they're members of the Ku Klux Klan anymore. Therefore, there's no systemic racism. And that, to me, at least seems uh, oversimplified, especially if there can be more to racism than simply overt prejudice and and political uh, uh, segregation. Um, racism isn't simply an ideology. It's, it's, I mean, Ayn Rand herself called it an aspect of the anti-conceptual mentality, which is something that people default to when they're not choosing their own values, when they're not trying to, uh, to, to form an abstract understanding of the world. Uh, She saw racism as a, as a, as a expression of uh, tribalistic, this tribalistic mentality, when people are afraid, they don't understand the world around them, they, they seek, uh, comfort and security in a group, a group that's based just on really superficial uh, perceptual level characteristics. And I mean, it's something that has been with us from primitive times. Uh, it, you, you could argue it's this kind of tribalistic racism is one of the most ancient forms of social organization and precedes any kind of. Uh, ideological political expressions of it i mean you only really get ideological racism where people try to come up with racist scientific theories as late as the 19th century and you only start to see it implemented in that in those terms in politics around the same time but it's it's much older more ancient more primitive than that and so if that's the kind of psychological basis for racism which does get expressed in political institutions and when it does it's really really bad when you remove those political institutions and when you when you make it shameful for people to adopt the the ideology it's not like all of the psychological mechanisms that went into that in the first place are just going to disappear overnight either Uh, and you know you could argue that there's ways in which our culture helps them disappear And Ayn Rand thought that uh, capitalist politics helps them disappear even faster. It incentivizes people to see other people as trading partners and not as members of some race or another. Uh, But there's there's a lot more to it than just the politics and just the just the uh, ideology. You have you have thoughts on that?
1: The it's important, the categories in which she puts racism so that it's the most primitive form of collectivism and it's a version of determinism it's to think of a person as what makes the person the individual that they are but individual is in quotes what makes them what they are in scare quotes what makes them what they are is their genetic lineage it's what their ancestry is it's where they're descended from biologically it's what their bloodline is that's a form of determinism. And in a intellectual environment and world that is extolling collectivism and determinism, that one product of that, not the only product, but one product of that, and particularly, as you said, for an anti-conceptual mentality, a mentality that is uncomfortable and doesn't want to... um, engage at an abstract level, but the whole culture is pushing collectivism and determinism, it pushes them into viewing things in terms of this primitive form of collectivism and determinism, which is a kind of racial uh, or at least a kind of biological genetic lineage identity, that that's how to think of yourself. It's both the, well, instead of putting it just as left and right, everybody basically, apart from objectivism, preaches some form of this. So they're all on the side of encouraging this kind of view of human identity. It was in in the latter part of my schooling, uh, in, in university, undergrad and graduate school, that the issue of pushing ethnicity came up, and, and particularly in Canada, was in the form of multiculturalism. And But what's significant about you is what your kind of cultural heritage, your traditions, it's some kind of blend of your, the traditions and the genetic lineage that you've been born into. That's how you should think of yourself, as that's that's what makes you you. You should get back to your roots, and your roots are this kind of collectivism and determinism. The more you push that, the more it's going to be that that's how people look at themselves. And the you had talked about it, you put it as conservatives. The conservatives push an anti-conceptual agenda. They push the this worship of tradition, in in a really primitive kind of way, of which their love of religion is an aspect of it, um, and it's both religion is anti-conceptual; it's it's bogus abstractions. It and thinking of it of of conservatives of of b- being willing to walk together with anti-evolutionists. Um, like what is more anti-conceptual and primitive? than to reject Darwin and everything that he's taught us, because although that's what my religion says and that's what my traditions say we should do. The more that that is the environment that everybody's raised in, that you would think that um, some kind of racism, not necessarily looking exactly like Jim Crow, is going to be on the ascendancy yeah, the, I mean, there's real reasons to think that, so so that, that she's putting it in, it's a form of collectivism and determinism. And if you ask, have collectivism and determinism gone away? Uh, no, I think they're both on the ascendancy in different ways. And one byproduct of that is these things in their most primitive form will also be now back to on the ascendancy rather than in retreat. I thought we would
0: uh, wrap up by uh, putting, uh, c- connecting these two issues in a way beyond just the parallel, uh, because if, if you accept the argument that we've been making that, uh, that altruism is uh, systemic, that there's such a thing as systemic altruism, well, what if it turns out that racism itself is an expression of or consequence of altruism? for which i think there are many good arguments to be made uh and then if that's the case then uh well racism is going to be systemic for all the same reasons that altruism is and so what are the arguments for that proposition well i mean Rand herself thinks that altruism is the morality of tribalism that when you see yourself when you feel insecure and you see you need uh the safety of a group because you can't think for yourself Uh, you will see serving the group as the standard of of your ethic. And I already mentioned that she thinks that racism is the most uh, primitive form of collectivism, uh, the most primitive form of that tribal morality. Well, that means that if you think about it, racism actually is a, it's a a version um, of altruism. The, The person who is a racist thinks that people who well, first of all, if, he's, if he thinks well of his race, he thinks I must live to serve the race. That's something greater than myself. I have to live to serve the racial tribe. And then those who aren't lucky enough to be uh, parts of my tribe, who are members of other races, they need to be sacrificed uh, to the good of my tribe, just like I might need to sacrifice myself for the sake of my tribe. So, I mean, this is the way in which nationalist politics actually works. It's one of the examples of altruist politics that we mentioned before. Um, so that's that's one argument for why uh, racism is actually an expression of a of the most kind of primitive versions of altruism. But here's another point about how it's a kind of consequence uh, of of tribal of, of altruism. We know that one of the other major expressions of altruism in politics is welfare statism. And one of the things that Ayn Rand argued for in detail through, in many of her uh, political writings was the way in which welfare statism in the mixed economy, uh, because of the way in which it sacrifices one group of people to another, pushes them into pressure groups, into interest groups, in order, you know, the kind of modern day tribes. And then they end up unifying around various kinds of identities, including, especially later in the game, Uh, racial identities, because if you're living in this kind of anti-conceptual culture, that's what people tend to identify with. Uh, And there's a way in which you can then also see many of the things that uh, uh, advocates of the welfare state, contemporary leftists, are doing and saying as, as themselves racist not just because uh, of the the racial identity groups that their systems have created but if you think about the way in which people see themselves as advocating for the for victims for the downtrodden for the the um, the uh, uh, the the underdog kind that you were example talking about before uh, they often see them as uh, these are people who need our help who can't help themselves uh, who are just sort of innately victims and we're here to help them and when they're talking about members of racial minorities, it's racist, not in the way that conservatives often emphasize that it's like anti-white racism, though I think there's an element of that. It's its racist in the old fashioned uh, way in which you regard the members of non-white groups as inferior because they can't help themselves. And that's just plain old fashioned, uh, anti-black, for example, racism. And that's all encouraged by their sort of white savior altruist mentality uh that that is a product of altruism so i mean i think you can give you can give an argument that um if you if you get into a system where people are pushed into these uh uh, interest groups by the by the mixed economy pressure group warfare and especially when um people see themselves as either members of a a, an oppressed group who needs to fight back against the other group or who are there to save the oppressed group or whichever you're, you're descending into greater and greater racism and this is this is exactly what Ayn Rand predicted. She said, if you have these kind of welfare status policies, if you have you know, the quota systems that uh, they advocate, it's going to make people more, not less racist. And so was she wrong in making that prediction? And when we look at the system that we have today and the culture that we have today, would we expect racism to have disappeared? Uh, this is a point that Greg Salmieri has often made, so I'm giving him credit for it. I think it's an excellent point. And Do you have anything to add to that, Ankar?
1: just to emphasize that Ayn Rand's talking a lot about this in her later writings in the 70s and into the 80s that one of the themes is that we're descending into tribalism um and and global one of the articles global balkanization and that's where she talks about the rise of this new idea of ethnicity and it's a blend of tradition and racism um and there's a, the, she's writing about the anti-conceptual mentality and she's writing about how the welfare state and, and the mixed economy, as you were talking about, divides people into groups and they don't even fully understand what's happening to them, that it is now I need to be part of a group and then I come to see my identity as being part of a group. And, and it's, she's writing a lot about the descent into tribalism. Of which racism is one aspect. It's not the total of what is going on. So th- it's not like there's just one article where she talks about this. A, it, this is a theme for her. This is where she thinks the direct the direction in which we're heading, and the the I think she thinks the wider world is ahead of the U.S. The U.S. is the best in regard to this. She really liked, and I think for good reason, the idea that uh, America is a melting pot. Uh, and what that meant at a cultural and at a political level of, of taking immigrants from all around the world and keeping what's best, then learning American ideals, which many are the best in the world, certainly the best political, moral perspective on human beings and human beings' relationship to government and their nation. It's a melting pot in the sense that it allowed people to be free to keep what's actually good, to discard what is bad, not to cling to their old traditions and their old ways. And that is in part what was going away. And it's much more advanced in other parts of the world. And America was starting to get this. But yeah, if you take it as a prediction, it's, I think, unfortunately, she's been, she was right about that. I mean, many people now today and in the last few years have talked about, yeah, we seem more and more tribal. And she saw this coming 30, 40 years ago, and that it has definite intellectual and philosophical causes.
0: Yeah, so I think if she's right about that, and if if it makes sense of what we see around us today, then not only is uh, altruism systemic, but, but so is racism, only it turns out that the left, both the left and the right, might well be part of that same system without their even realizing it, which I think is a really distinctive take uh, on this whole controversy. Um, well, we don't, um, I think we're, I think we've gone past our time limit, so I, we, we probably yes. shouldn't take uh, any more questions, but I, we, there were a couple that came in through Super Chat. They're not here to see us, unfortunately, because of that glitch on YouTube, um, but thank you uh, uh, to the people, the two people, uh, Bradley and Chazbot, who gave who gave uh, uh, to Super Chat. Thank you for that. Um, otherwise, we'll start to wrap up, and I want to start by just um, sharing a few resources that people can take a look at if they want to learn about some of the, uh, some of the topics that we discussed today. Uh, a couple of them are both to be found in Ayn Rand's book, Philosophy Who Needs It. Uh, in Philosophical Detection, that's where she talks about altruism as the rich source of rationalizations, and as the, of, she talks about irrational philosophies as systems of rationalization. In The Missing Link is where she talks about the anti-conceptual mentality, uh, which for her is the psychology behind racism. Uh, She also talks about that a bit in uh, Selfishness Without Without a Self, which is also in that book. And one more recommendation from Ayn Rand, this is now the psychology behind the acceptance of altruism. This is her essay, Altruism as Appeasement. And uh, it was originally published in The Objectivist, but I think it's also reprinted in The Voice of Reason, which is uh, sometimes easier to get your hands on. So look up The Voice of Reason and find altruism as appeasement in that. Next week's show uh, will happen a week from today on a topic that uh, connects to some of the issues we were just discussing at the end of mm-hmm. the episode. Uh, affirmative action and how uh, this uh, question about affirmative action has come before the supreme court and that'll be a conversation between Ankar and our colleague Ilan Giorno you'll get a chance to hear them talk about this particular manifestation of uh, i think they'll probably argue it's a manifestation of systemic racism uh, along with other ills this time in our actual legal system um, otherwise uh, if you enjoyed this podcast i would invite you if you're watching us on uh, YouTube to subscribe to this channel, to click on the bell to get notifications when new episodes are posted. Especially if you're watching a recording, please leave a comment, like this episode, share it, so that that'll help uh, optimize the algorithm. And same thing if you're watching on Facebook Live. Uh, If uh, you want to send us questions uh, about anything that came up today, or if you have uh, suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email. Uh, to newideal at einan we read everything that comes in. We answer many questions. Sometimes we actually take up uh, suggested episodes. And we've certainly gotten, I think, encore a lot of questions about uh, uh, controversies about race and racism uh, over the past few uh, over the last year or two. So hopefully, we're answering some kinds of the questions, some of the kinds of questions that people have asked with today's episode. So. Uh, thanks for having this conversation with me. This is an idea that you uh, have been uh, talking about for a long time, and I, I wanted to bring it out into the open for more people to hear about it. I think it's really interesting. So thanks for, thanks for uh, the idea, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Thanks, man. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast
1: was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash
0: membership.